Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Good evening, Children of the Night. Thank you for joining us again for another episode of Tales to Terrify. I am Stephen Kilpatrick, and we have another stop on our road trip for the summer south in the mountains of West Virginia. You will remember during our move from our old home in Chicago to the Shenandoah that we made a pit stop in Athens, Ohio, to pay a visit to The Ridges, a former mental institution. I'm a fan of the building, in part being one of the large institutions constructed using the Kirkbride plan, these enormous buildings built with expansive wings to warehouse whoever the generations before ours thought needed to be put out of sight. Today we'll visit the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. The Virginia General Assembly authorized the construction of the facility in 1850. Construction began, but found itself interrupted by the Civil War. This notable building became one of the structures that began construction on Virginia soil and completed on West Virginia soil due to the cessation of those Virginian counties to form West Virginia, of course. 250 patients housed in solitude served as the initial plan when it had opened in 1864. By 1880, the hospital held just shy of triple that. The number would continue to swell as Americans sent her drug-addicted alcoholics, epileptics, mentally challenged, hysterical, and criminal. Seventy years later, at its peak, what had now been named Weston State Hospital held a staggering 2,600 people. Due to public pressure of the conditions of the hospital and changing treatment for mental health, the population of the facility dwindled, then permanently closed in 1994. During its time operating, the patients lived in overcrowded conditions, and during the primitive methods of treating mental health, including caging, lobotomies, and electroshock therapy. And people did meet their end inside of these walls. 
The building that served as a hospital sold at auction on August 29, 2007, to a contractor for $1.5 million. The hospital now serves tours, events, and overnight ghost hunts. Link will be in the show notes for booking your visit. Also, according to its Wikipedia page, the hospital grounds have hosted no less than four ghosts and haunting-related television crews over the last seven years, so you might have already had a peek inside the walls. But let's move on to our fiction for the night. First up will be a story from Patrick O'Neill. Patrick O'Neill is a rising new talent in the world of horror fiction. He resides in Dorset, UK, with his wife, Nikki, and son, Benedict. His dark and unsettling tales have been published in Alderway in Chiral Mad by Written Backwards, winner of the Compilations Anthology category at the London Book Festival in 2012, Church Farmhouse in Fear, a modern anthology of horror and terror by Crooked Cat, The Box in Dorset Voices by Roving Press, The Collection in the Darkness Within by Indigo Mosaic. Patrick is currently working on his single author collection, Dark Hearts, and on his debut novel, No Contrition. The story, Until the Darkness Comes, was published in Tales of Mystery, Suspense, and Terror from Chuffed Buff Books. And now, Patrick O'Neill's Until the Darkness Comes. It was in the house again last night. I woke in the early hours to the waiting, monotonous ticking of the grandfather clock in the hallway and knew that I was no longer alone. It is difficult to explain but I have come to recognise the stillness that it brings, the loaded silence that accompanies its arrival, laced with malice. I was rendered motionless, as though drugged into a paralysis where all but my lungs had been spared, shakily sucking in air before wheezing it back out again. After a time, even the grandfather clock seemed intimidated and was audibly quietened by its presence. As the hour chimed, a faint rustling sounded in the hallway as it momentarily altered its position before becoming still once again. Some minutes later, a creaking broke the quietness, the clear, unmistakable sound of floorboards straining under weight. Abbott's Rest is an old house, full of unusual noises and shadowy recesses, but I have lived here in solitude long enough to discern that which is typical and that which is not. How different it is now. In the beginning it did not enter the house, but instead crept around the perimeter of the lawn, its willowy, agile shadow stooped but nimble, dipping in and out of darkness. At first I thought I had been mistaken, that a simple trick of light had misguided my senses, but as the sightings became more frequent, and the silences increasingly laden with intent as it drew nearer to the house each night, I came to understand that my worst imaginings had materialised into reality. At first it was cautious, but now, armed with menacing assurance, it simply bides its time, knowing intimately the dread that it conjures. I understand well enough. The more I have learned of its intent, the more fearful it knows I have become, and so it draws nearer with each passing night, bringing with it my unalterable fate. And so I will document all this, whilst I still have the function, in order that someone may know. It is important, and right, of course, that history, however unusual or implausible, is documented for future generations. It began at the ruins just two weeks ago. It was peculiar to me, even then, that having lived in this rural acreage of Berkshire for more than twenty years, and being a retired history lecturer, I had never known of its existence. 
That said, I have since sought further reference from Ordnance Survey maps and have found no mention or indication that the ruined chapel in Berricot Wood even exists. Perhaps it is better that way. In any case, it was quite by chance that I came across the ruins whilst driving a different route home to Abbot's Rest from Oxford, where I had spent the afternoon walking in the meadows. I say by chance, but of course that is wrong. There is no coincidence in any of this. Following the rainfall of the previous three days, the gloomy clouds that had haunted the sodden landscape now lifted away to expose pale October skies. I drove through the small settlement of Alderway, then further down through Compton, following a narrow tree-lined road that I hoped would eventually lead in the direction of Pangley and Abbot's Rest. The road was unfamiliar, snaking through a series of blind bends and forcing me to drive with caution and the hope of not passing a car travelling in the opposite direction, which I did not. Up ahead, the road narrowed again, this time to a single lane where spidery branches formed a leafless, glistening tunnel overhead, just as it unexpectedly widened once more to open woodland on either side, where tall larches presided watchfully over a dense carpet of rotting brown leaves as far as the eye could see. Barracut Wood. As the spindly trees flickered past my window, I caught no more than a fleeting glimpse of crumbling pale stonework in amongst the trees, but it was enough to ignite my interest. I pulled over into a muddy clearing at the roadside and squinted into the sunlight until I saw, now properly, the ivy-clad remains of the chapel. The air was colder than I had expected, and I hugged my overcoat about me as I trudged through the dead leaves towards the fragmented stones. Far above, crows became unsettled in their nests, flapping and cawing and breaking twigs, and, though I knew I was alone here, I could not ignore the feeling that I was being watched silently from the trees. More than once, as I approached the chapel's entrance, I stopped to look over my shoulder to be sure that I was not being followed. The chapel itself, no more than a collection of ivy-covered stones jutting irregularly from the ground, was dominated by a single, crumbling archway, which was largely intact. Judging by the stonework, I guessed its age to be early 1500s, and that, in all likelihood, the chapel had been razed to the ground during the Reformation. The air was dank here, heavy with the fragrant stench of old decay and long-dead animals. I stared about the stones for a moment, but then, just as quickly as I had set foot here, I felt the urge to leave immediately, as though I were trespassing on hallowed ground and was an unwanted impostor in this place. Feeling queasy, I stumbled backwards, almost falling to the ground. The crows became unsettled again, cawing loudly into the quiet, but as I turned, something else caught my eye, a small distance from the ruins where the woodland dipped steeply and out of sight. On the slope itself, the earth had slipped and rolled into troughs of mud and leaves, taking with it what I thought to be a large, single block of stone. As I made my way to it, I saw now that it was a large, upright tomb, laying askew halfway down the incline. Set in limestone, spidery cracks lined its surface, and lichen spread across its length in abstract patterns of emerald and pale grey. The stench worsened as I approached, but still something pushed me on, propelling me forward to see more, until finally, resting my hands on its stony lid, I brushed away the tendrils of ivy to reveal the worn engraving beneath. Rufus Eldridge, 1862-1904, to Ocacanti Scientium. Eldridge. I spoke the name aloud, struggling to recall why it was so familiar to me. Where have I heard your name? Ocicanti Scientium. Again I spoke the words into the silence without understanding their meaning. In that moment, 
a crow cawed into the woodland like a wounded infant, making me flinch and lose my footing. As I stumbled, my knee pressed against the side of the tomb, and stone collapsed beneath the weight, sending a large segment of the structure slipping, as I did in turn, to rest on the ground facing the darkness of Eldridge's resting place. I scrambled to my knees, but not before a foul breath of stagnant air rushing from the gaping hole stole across my face. The skinless yellowed bones of Eldridge were now visible, his discoloured skull leering at me in a twisted, unmoving grimace. I called out as something black and nameless shifted and rustled from the depths of the tomb, and then I ran for the safety of the car. It was in the house again last night. Closer this time. Beneath the ticking of the clock, faint whispery breath sounded on the very edge of hearing as it stood, hunched and motionless, in the moonlit darkness of my room. Frozen with dread, I clenched my eyes shut for fear of what I might see. Silent, ticking minutes stretched by until finally the oppression lifted, until I could breathe normally once again. I drove back to Oxford after leaving the ruins, not to walk in the meadows this time, but to visit St Aldelm's Library, obscured behind the cloisters of Christchurch College, a place I knew well from my time as a history lecturer, but that I had not visited for many years. I had been foolish, I told myself, to be alarmed by the movement I had witnessed in Eldridge's tomb. Clean an animal, a badger or a fox, had burrowed through the ground and found a home there. But the question of Eldridge, and why I had so readily recognised his name, goaded me, and I knew I would not rest until I knew more. Besides, time was in my hands, or so I thought. Yeats greeted me with a small bow as I entered the wood-panelled entrance hall. He was a stout man in his early seventies, with a ruddy, thread-vein complexion and a head of bushy grey hair. As always, he was immaculately presented in a press blazer and gleaming brogues. He had been the head librarian at St Aldam's for all of the twenty-two years that I had known him. Professor Jefferson, it's been a long time, sir. Indeed it has, I said, but history is in the blood, Yeats. We always come home in the end. We considered each other for a moment, as old colleagues do, understanding each other implicitly, and both falling seamlessly into our well-ingrained roles once again. Is there anything in particular today, Professor, or are you just browsing? But before I could answer, Yeats craned his neck to peer over my shoulder, and said, Oh, now that is odd. Odd indeed. I thought for a moment someone was standing behind you, Professor, but there is no one, of course. Apologies. I age, you see. Your eyes aren't what they used to be. Oh, I am sorry. How can I help? Eldridge, I said. Rufus Eldridge. Yeats fell silent for a moment, and I detected a slight unease in his voice as he finally spoke again. The Victorian explorer? Victorian would be correct. He died in 1904, age 42, but that's all I know of him. Except perhaps one other thing. Ocacanti Sientia? Blinded by knowledge, Yeats translated into the quietness. It is the same man. Follow me. Yeats led me through the main library, where the fading October sunlight slanted over the criss-cross wooden flooring and empty reading cubicles. Two or three gowned students sat hunched over literature at intermittent spaces along the central reading table that stretched the length of the library. The scent of old books and furniture wax lingered in the air as Yeats ushered me to the staircase at the western corner. Interesting character, our Eldridge, he said as we ascended to the upper gallery. 
Like many of his fellow Oxfordians, he graduated with a first, philosophy in his case, and then took off to explore overseas cultures and make a name for himself as a discoverer. Artefacts from his Norwegian and Spanish travels are still kept here in Oxford, the Pitt Rivers Museum. The upper gallery, illuminated by buzzing strip lights, overlooked the main library, and I gripped the railing beside me as the familiar spell of dizziness washed through me at the sight of the scene far below. But soon we moved away from the balcony to a narrow, dimly lit corridor where aged leather-bound volumes filled the shelves to either side. No more than a minute later, Yeats stopped and squinted through the half-light across the shelves in search of the book that he sought. Yes, he said, brushing a light finger over the ancient spines. Eldritch had a bent for religion, or more specifically, a fascination for proving the existence of the afterlife. His work was cut short at the turn of the century, when he returned from Morocco and became suddenly blind. How did he die? Here we are," said Yeats, slipping a small black hardback from the shelf above him. "The Quest for Knowledge" by Montague Pitson. It's really an overview of explorers in the Victorian era. Chapter six is dedicated to Eldridge. Interesting reading too. Gives a real insight into the superstitions of the time. Here in England, I mean. I thanked him and took the little book, leafing through its thin pages. Now, if you'll excuse me, Professor, I must get back downstairs. There's a reading cubicle free just to the left, in the northern corner. We do close in half an hour, but if you need more, that's all I'll need. I said. Thanks again, Yeats. As always, you're my first point of reference. Go carefully, Professor Jeffreys. He said. And there was such sincerity in his voice at that moment that, for some reason, a cold shiver crept down my spine. He made a small bow, and a moment later was gone. After making myself as comfortable as possible in the cramped wooden confines of the reading cubicle, I switched on the desk lamp and opened the book. Beyond the leaded window beside me, the sun had fallen to the horizon. The jagged spires of Oxford now darkening silhouettes against apocalyptic skies. Far below, shadows were gathering steadily in the recesses of the university cloisters, and as I read of Eldridge's schooling years in the remote Benedictine monastery of Crowcastle, and then of his further education here in Oxford, I became aware, for the first time, of the thickening silence that had found its way to this secluded part of the library—not a comfortable, relaxing quietness in which to study, but a watchful, oppressive silence that made it difficult for concentration for any length of time. Everything Yeats had said had been right. Eldritch's keen interest in the discovery and proof of an afterlife had led him through France, Spain, and the mountains of southern Italy to visit isolated monastic communities and seek out little-known religious groups. Montague described Eldritch's travels in fine detail and referred extensively to Eldritch's unpublished journals, now stored at Oxford's Pitt Rivers Museum. His final trip to Morocco, however, was completely undocumented. On his return to England, Eldridge bought a 16th-century Tudor property just outside Pangley in Berkshire by the name of Abbot's Rest. As I read the words, a chill crept over me again, and something made me want to run far away from this place, far away from Eldridge and anything to do with his journeys. I understood now exactly where I had heard of him before. As a previous owner of Abbot's Rest, his name would have been on the property deeds which I had viewed over twenty years ago when I first purchased the house. An unnerving coincidence. The final page of the chapter outlined Eldridge's demise.
Just weeks after settling at Abbott's rest, Eldridge fell ill with flu-like symptoms and was unable to complete the journals outlining his Moroccan expedition. Some days later he deteriorated, losing his sense of sight and finally succumbing to the illness. As Eldridge had no living relatives, his entire estate was left to queen and country. Villagers at nearby Pangley posted a petition to have his body buried in an isolated location, as rumours had spread that he had brought back not only an illness from Morocco, but something else too. Sightings of a dark, inhuman figure creeping around Abbott's rest and the surrounding fields had become commonplace. Many believed that Eldridge's quest to prove the existence of an afterlife had drawn him into darkness, and that in Morocco he had finally discovered the evidence that he sought, but at the expense of his soul. In October of 1904, the petition was granted, and Eldridge was laid to rest in a remote area of woodland at Berricot. At the foot of the final paragraph, an etching of Eldridge's drawn face and lean shoulders had been imprinted on the page. His thin moustache was well trimmed, but his pale face looked ragged and gaunt against the backdrop of the rolling landscape. I couldn't help but notice that in the trees far behind him stood the silhouette of another figure, stooped and skeletal, in amongst the shadows. Last night I dreamed of the place again. Not England, but a dusty, sweltering place, where empty, sand-filled streets were lined with ramshackle dwellings to either side. The light was fading quickly, but I caught sight of a tall, white-robed figure ahead of me just before he dipped into an adjacent alleyway. I followed, as I knew I must. I turned into the alleyway. The path was darker still, lined with dilapidated facades that were dotted with fastened shutters and firmly battened wooden doors. A series of crumbling archways adorned the path from above, and, just ahead of me, motionless beneath the final archway, stood the figure. I wiped the sweat from my face with an open palm, and in doing so, felt the thinly trimmed moustache resting on my upper lip. Just ahead of me, the figure stole into an open doorway. I followed inside. Here there was only impenetrable darkness, thick and absolute. The stench of old death hung heavily in the air. Something rustled nearby, then brushed past my shoulder. As I reached out, my fingers felt across dry, leathery skin like that of an ape. A match was struck in the darkness, casting an orangey glow, and, in a second, everything was horribly clear. I woke to the sound of my own screaming, and then, of course, to the silence and the terrible knowledge that it was here again, in my room as before, but closer still, leaning over my bed and rasping breaths over my face, towards my eyes. It will come again, perhaps tonight, to finish what it has started. But until then, I will enjoy the sight I still have. After all, partial vision is more preferable than total blindness, and I will take pleasure in the colours and the light until the darkness comes. That was Patrick O'Neill's Until the Darkness Comes, as read by Colin Clues. Colin Clues is a musician and writer living in UK. He loves music, reading, and movies. Although he's British, he grew up in Africa and still hasn't managed to do anything cooler than that, despite studying philosophy and learning to play electric guitar. Thank you, Colin. Our second story for the night will be from our dear old friend, Harry Shannon. 
Harry Shannon has been a singer, an actor, an Emmy-nominated songwriter, a recording artist in Europe, a music publisher, a VP of Carol Co. Pictures, notice Terminator 2, Total Recall, and Rambo being in the credits, and worked as a freelance music supervisor on films such as Basic Instinct and Universal Soldier. He has an M.A. in psychology and has been a paraprofessional counselor since 1988. Many of his clients work in the entertainment industry. Although primarily a novelist, Harry has contributed short stories and novellas to a number of genre magazines and anthologies, including the highly praised Dark Delicacies 2, Limbus 2, Brimstone Turnpike, Tales from the Gore Zone, Small Bites, the Journalstone Double Down series, A Dark and Deadly Valley, and On Deadly Ground, a collection of Western noir co-edited by veteran authors Ed Gorman and Dave Zeltzerman. His definitive collection, A Host of Shadows, is now available on Kindle. Mr. Shannon's novels include the Mick Callahan suspense series as well as Clan, Demon, Dead and Gone, The Hungry Zombie Books, and All the Devils, co-written with Stephen W. Booth and the well-reviewed thriller The Pressure of Darkness. He won the Tombstone Award for Best Novel with Clan and a Dark Scribble from Dark Scribe Magazine. His story, Night Nurse, and fiction collection, A Host of Shadows, were each nominated for a Stoker Award by the Horror Writers Association. Otto Penzler selected 50 Minutes, co-written with Joe. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. O'Donnelly of Slake Magazine for inclusion in the Best American Mystery Stories of 2011. Harry also scripted the film version of the camp horror novel Dead and Gone, produced and directed by Yossi Sasson, and played a bit as the sheriff. The film was released on DVD via Lionsgate in 2008. Harry Shannon continues to write fiction and music. He sees clients by appointment only at a discreet office located in Studio City, California.
He is married and has one child. And now, Harry Shannon's The Easy Way. A black and white slowly turned the corner up ahead, oversized tires hissing in the rain. The balding cop in the passenger seat opened the window to dump steaming hot coffee onto the asphalt. Tom Garrett flinched, acutely aware of the loaded Smith & Wesson thirty-eight that was hidden in the pocket of his yellow raincoat. The cop looked up with tired roadmap eyes as if sensing the reaction, and Garrett hunched his shoulders. He trotted towards a nearby liquor store with his head down and hands out of sight. He paused under the striped metal awning just as another wave of hail attacked like a horde of drunken Irish dancers. A burst of static, two garbled voices. The siren howled anguish, and the busy cops sped away. Garrett turned his back to the departing squad car and entered the nearly empty store, trembling right hand now caressing the gun. A motion detector pinged. The door closed behind him. Garrett could hear the faint sound of a classic rock station playing an early Eagles tune. The lyrics tugged at his ear, but he couldn't place them. Garrett took two steps forward, tennis shoes sucking the linoleum. He imagined how he'd look to someone else, a big, silver-haired man pushing sixty, but still formidable if you know what to look for. Old. I've gotten old. The bored young guy behind the counter had a nose ring, some crude jailhouse tattoos, and buzz-cut black hair. He picked imaginary lint from his tight black T-shirt before looking up and caught Garrett imagining him dead. He saw Garrett's surly face and one hand slid beneath the counter, probably to clutch his own weapon. Good evening. Yo. Warm breath born of frost, the ticking of a wall clock. The kid looked nervous, forehead abruptly shining with sweat. You gonna buy something this air cause we ain't running a homeless shelter. For one long moment, Garrett tried to do it, meant to do it, ordered himself to pull the thirty-eight and punch this guy's ticket, start a close-up, down-and-dirty firefight. He fantasized about the mutually assured destruction and the way he and the kid would be photographed, sprawled out like fallen heroes in a western with huge red stains splattered on their torn clothing. One move, and it would be done. Hell, he thought with a mental sigh. That would be the easy way out. He loosened his fingers. It hurt. You hear me, Pops? Garrett turned with one elastic, almost audible snap. You got any beef jerky? Right up here. The kid still had his right hand below the counter. His deep eyes were a bit too red, and the pupils were dilated from the THC. Garrett opened his slick raincoat as he walked. Now his tennis shoes made a high-pitched squeak on the damp linoleum floor. He stood at the counter and looked down at the kid and his wares. Several kinds of plain and spiced jerky were displayed on a wheel. Ah, Christ. A wave of blackness and grinding self-loathing made Garrett feel like picking on somebody. This cherry would do. He allowed his eyes to bore in and manufactured a bitter smile that stretched his weathered face in odd directions. Which one's the best? Shoulders rolling. I don't know. Pick one. Eat it. The clerk blanched, and he moved back a couple of inches. No way, dude. I never touch this stuff. Relax, Garrett offered. That cadaverous grin was still in place. Anyone ever tell you you need to work on your manners? Darting eyes. Say what? You heard me. You're being rude to a paying customer. Uh, sorry. So, you want jerky or not? 
nod. What's up, then? I haven't decided yet. Garrett kept up the thousand-yard stare until the spook kid made a small whining sound in the back of his throat, said, You know something? Forget the food. What do you want, then? Time. Say what? Never mind. Give me a pack of unfiltered smokes, whatever's cheapest. The clerk found some generic cigarettes, slid them over, and rang up the sale. The weird plastic grin never left Garrett's face. Money changed hands, and so did a cheap pack of matches from a local strip bar. Hot girls live on stage. Silence fell hard, except for the distant rattling gunfire, the rainstorm, and the low moan of a grief-stricken wind. Is that it? Garrett blinked. Yeah, I guess so. Okay, then. The kid nodded, Adam's apple bobbing like a cork. Thanks, Garrett said. His weary voice had a faint scratch in it like bony fingers on the velvet roof of a coffin. Hey, you have a nice night. He backed away without turning his back. When he left the store, he heard the kid sigh for the joy of breathing. Time took a jump cut. The next thing Garrett knew, he was standing outside under the awning, trying to mate flame to cigarette with hands that wouldn't stop twitching. He managed to light up, started walking, and took a deep, bitter drag. Since Garrett hadn't smoked in years, the nicotine rush slapped him sideways. He leaned against the brick wall, his heart thudding like a primitive drum. Damn. The cigarette slipped from his fingers and showered blue smoke and orange sparks before the rain put it out. The world spun like a brightly lit Ferris wheel. For a few seconds, the idea of just letting go, slipping away into dark nothingness, felt welcome. Garrett knew what he was doing. Did it anyway, even though it always brought back feelings from the war. He closed his eyes and tried to imagine being dead and gone, and his pulse quickened. Garrett remembered reading somewhere that death was the impossibility of further possibility. That idea makes the human ego, which is an observer, go tilt. It cannot see itself not being there, and thus the mind starts to gibber and shrivel, and yet we all have to die, even if we can't make peace with the idea. The world has hundreds of religions and philosophies, all claiming to have an answer that lies beyond answers in the undiscovered country. To be or not to be. Garrett threw the pack of cigarettes into a trash can. The rancid odor beneath the lid abruptly made him think of his deceased father. He struck his hands into his pockets and kept walking. Tom Garrett was a country boy, born outside of Eli, Nevada. The land was hard then, those who lived there harder still. His mother died young, and the old man, ace to his pals, found occasional work as a hired hand on different spreads, baling hay and branding cattle. World War II and the Pacific had gouged the warmth from his soul and left his dark eyes wary and haunted. He'd drink bathtub gin and mumble stories about humans flattened by tanks or fried crispy by flamethrowers and endless rivers of dark, dried blood. Garrett and his brother rapidly learned not to hang around when the fists started flying, which was damn near every weekend. Old Ace would sober up from time to time, drag the boys to the white clapboard church come Sunday morning, Kneeling beside him, they'd see swarthy, sweaty skin that stank of smoke and alcohol, powerful forearms and trembling hands that clutched a frayed black family Bible. Ace would close his eyes, struggling to believe, his quavering baritone tentatively joining in on the hymns he knew. 
Old Ace died of liver disease the summer Garrett was drafted and left for Nam. A car honked and Tom Garrett jumped sideways and back into a puddle. Taxi almost clipped him and the driver gave him the finger. Watch out, moron! Garrett shook his head and grunted. He felt grateful for the interruption because he didn't want to think about Nam. His time there had been violent and chaotic, though blessedly brief. He'd been shot twice in the first four months. Then halfway through his tour, a mortar barrage had wiped out most of his platoon and given him his third wound and a ticket home. He'd arrived in country as an invulnerable, immortal young soldier, but arrived back in the world a bitter drug addict who was preoccupied with death and dying. And now here he was, about to kill again. A trident of blistered white lightning pierced the western skyline and the deserted office buildings at the end of the street morphed into towering gargoyles. The air boiled with electricity reeked of ozone. Garrett leaned his shoulders against the downpour and turned his collar up. His jeans and shoes were uncomfortable, soaked. His clothes made odd whooshing sounds as he picked up the pace. Low thunder rumbled hungrily in the mountains, rolled forward and prowled through the concrete canyons. I could shoot myself, too. Garrett's fingers clutched the cold metal of the weapon and immediately recoiled again. Maybe like the cops do it, he thought, grimly. Just eat the gun. Want a party? The voice startled Garrett, and he stepped back. His left shoe landed in a puddle of rainwater where the gutter was clogged with autumn leaves. He lost his balance and moved away, left hand tunneling back into the pocket of his raincoat. Above him, some gang kid had shot out the streetlight, and the corner was a smear of shadow except for the pale rainbows of neon reflected from the slick city streets. I didn't mean to scare you, Pops. The voice was female. Garrett squinted. A skinny girl was maybe a yard deep into the alley. She took his silence for interest and glided forward through the mist like some eerie creature born without feet. My name is Willow, and I can make you happy for fifty bucks. That true? For sure? No, I don't think so. The scantily clad goth girl was clearly a junkie, anorexic thin with small circular bruises on her pale arms. She took in his size and the black tension in his face and hesitated. Wary eyes darted up and down the residential street. Her exposed body was alive with crawling goose flesh trembling from the cold. Garrett could tell her nerves were shot. Okay, forty? Willow stayed put. Her harsh voice went up a notch on the second word and made it a pithy, desperate question. You'd sell yourself that cheap. Huh? Garrett opened the raincoat and took out his wallet. Myriad expressions running from agony to relief to mistrust flowed over the girl's face like melting wax. He counted out a twenty and two tens and took out a worn business card. Willow shook feverishly. She licked her lips and edged further into the light, but her eyes kept flicking back and forth between Garrett and her hiding place. I got a pimp, she lied. He's right behind me. Sure you do. Garrett didn't budge as the girl called Willow forced her painted mouth into a reasonable imitation of a leer. How do you want me to do you? I don't. Garrett held out the cash. Just take this. Huh? It's on one condition, though. You've got to promise me something. Their skittish eyes widened. What? This business card is for a referral agency, Willow. Call that number. Get in a program. Get clean. Do it now while you're young. She tried to sneer. You some kind of Captain Save-A-Whore? Nothing like that. Forget it, her eyes moistened. Just too late for me. No, Garrett said wearily. I promise you it's not. Just call that number. 
She was openly crying now. Her nose was running, and she wiped it on her arm. Maybe I'll do that, okay? Maybe. I'll think about it. He stepped closer, and this time she didn't flinch. Garrett pressed the bills and the card into her hand. Do more than think about it. Think of me as your last chance. Life's a bitch sometimes, but don't take the easy way out. Easy. She repeated the word, dully, without emphasis. Oh, and there's one more thing. The girl cocked her head like a parrot and looked up expectantly, but Garrett wasn't there. He was already moving away towards the main drag. His deep voice echoed a bit. Tell them Hack sent you. More rain, less time. Tom Garrett hurried his pace. Sepulveda Boulevard had decayed more rapidly than most other areas of the San Fernando Valley. Anywhere much above victory, it was like a giant monopoly board, packed with sleazy liquor stores, vacant lots, crack houses, and motels that promised 24-hour cable porn and mirrored ceilings. Garrett still felt at home on these blighted streets, still had some larceny in his soul. In fact, that's why he'd chosen to leave his car several blocks away with mud smeared over the license plate. Garrett looked up and down the street for cops. Finding it clear, he walked briskly through the rainy night. The gun still seemed heavy and awkward, like a tiny brick of well-oiled metal. He wondered again if he'd be able to go through with it. He had less than ten long blocks to decide. I can do this. Garrett stopped walking and stepped into an alley out of the rain. Some overflowing boxes of trash were stacked haphazardly on a raised, slatted platform. Garrett stepped up onto the dry wood and leaned against the brick wall. He slid down into a sitting position, a yellow raincoat squealing in protest, wrapped his arms around his knees and closed his eyes again. The thoughts wouldn't slow down or rearrange themselves to be any less disturbing, no, no matter how hard he tried to control them. They just played out like some movie in his woozy head. Garrett had been in Tarzana for a second rehab, still just a tall bully who thought post-traumatic stress disorder was a blank check to use drugs. The meanings were mandatory, but he'd attended them sullenly, legs sprawled out to lay claim to alpha space, muscular arms crossed over his chest to keep arrogance intact. He'd already got in trouble for fighting and putting the moves on an actress who was in for her third DUI. He imagined himself there, and a smile curled his lips. What a damned fool. A new guy led the meeting that night, a man nearly Garrett's size with a shaved head and laser-blue eyes. Hack looked maybe fifty, but nobody smart would have screwed with him anyway. He wore a blue work shirt with a cowboy string tie, a belt with a gold horse buckle, and a pair of snakeskin boots. He talked about his time as a biker and said he'd done seven to ten upstate, but didn't say why. He'd gone around the circle, made everyone speak up. When those eyes fixed on him, Garrett felt his guts dive into the parking garage in a fast elevator. After the meeting, Hack had cornered him by the ashtray outside on the patio. You got a sponsor? No. Garrett mumbled, I don't. That wasn't a question, Hack said. I said, you got a sponsor, me, and I have a newsflash. Your sponsor tells you what to do. Okay. Now the first thing you're going to do is take that chip off your shoulder before I knock the taste right out of your mouth. Garrett, sitting in the cold alley, felt his lips twitch into a smile. The memory of that moment still gave him the oddest mixture of amusement, respect, and fear he'd ever experienced. He'd been sober ever since, and that was a lot of years. Most of that time had been at Hack's side, first as a student, then as a good friend. A passing car set a tidal wave of filthy water into the alley. 
It rose up and over the wooden platform and splashed against his legs. Garrett swore under his breath and struggled back to his feet. He raised his illuminated watch. No more time. Garrett shook himself like a wet hound, stepped down and stumbled back out onto the empty sidewalk. A break in the rain let him complete the last long block in relative comfort. He'd rehearsed this part several times, so his heart settled down and routine took over. He turned right and came to a muddy stretch of grass adjoining the nearly empty parking lot. Garrett stayed in the darkness, away from the lights. His eyes roamed the vehicles in the brightly lit lobby, searching for witnesses. Satisfied, he jogged across the grass, slid down the last row of cars, and found the fire door. The pack of matches he'd left the night before was still there, propping the emergency exit open. Garrett slipped inside. He stood in the stairwell, took several deep breaths, and then started up the metal stairs as silently as possible. His footfalls echoed in the gloom. An eerie calm overtook him, now that the moment was at hand. Three floors and time would run out. No more indecision. Death is coming. Two floors, then one. Garrett paused on the third floor to gather his thoughts and took another quick look at his glowing wristwatch. He was right on schedule. The overworked nurses would be completing their final rounds, now that visiting hours were officially over. The VA hospital was badly understaffed, and many of the patients went unattended for long stretches, even after repeated attempts to summon help. Garrett edged the door open and peered out into the dimly lit hallway. The green walls were spiderweb with cracks, the paint faded and stained from cigarette smoke, and the yellow linoleum was peeling at the edges. Garrett stepped out into the hall and gently closed the door. He licked his lips and looked both ways before striding forward. Soon he was proceeding briskly toward the next ward. The elevator pinged and Garrett slid into the shadows. The doors opened and an octogenarian strapped to two different IV rigs came shuffling out into the hall, looking down at his paper shoes. His scalp was peeling and covered with sores. A chubby Hispanic orderly waited impatiently until certain the old man was headed in the right direction, then punched another floor and left. Garrett let the patient pass before continuing on to room 407. Garrett paused outside the door, his mind racing and nervously fondled a thirty-eight in his pocket. I can do this. The room stank of antiseptic and decay. Old Hack was sitting up in bed with his eyes shut. The big man, once so imposing, had been whittled down to bones and pale parchment skin. His jaws were clenched, grinding, knuckles white from enduring another bout of intense pain. Tom Garrett watched him drink some water and relax into the stained pillows. He fought off a sudden, almost overwhelming urge to turn his back, just run away. Then it was too late because Hack saw him and grinned toothlessly. Hi, kid. Despite the agony, Hack's eyes still burned brightly with the spirit of the vital man he'd been. His voice was brittle, frail, but suffused with affection. Damn good of you to come. You know I had to. Did anyone see you? Garrett shook his head. No, I don't think so. Did you bring it? Lie to him. Just say no. But Garrett couldn't do that. Take the easy way out. So he walked closer in his wet shoes and reached into the pocket of his raincoat with his gloved left hand. No fingerprints. No serial number, Garrett said. Tom Garrett surprised himself by offering up the gun without hesitation, and in one smooth motion it was done. Hack took it without comment, wiped it in the bedsheet. 
He reached into a stack of thick books by his bedside and extracted one that was hollowed out and filled with some bills and a little spare change. He set the weapon inside and replaced the book. I'm obliged. The two men stared awkwardly at one another, their tired eyes reddening. Garrett broke contact to pick at his fingernails. Hell, I ain't decided yet, Hack said. I know. I won't do it unless things... Unless it gets so bad I got nothing else left but the choice itself. You know? I understand. I appreciate you keeping your promise. Sure. Hank contorted, moaned, and a dark pink froth appeared on his lower lip. Clearly embarrassed, he wiped it away with a tissue. Guess you got places to go, people to see. Yeah, maybe I'll call you tomorrow. You do that. The younger man backed away. He turned and looked down and to his left, both to find the doorknob and to hide his tears. I'll see you. Not if I see you first. Garrett smiled in a minor key and went out into the hallway. The floor was as still and shattered as before. He walked to the emergency exit, checked again, and went into the stairwell. As he trotted down the steps, he surprised himself by emitting a barking sob. He gripped the railing and moved faster, though he could barely see. He paused at the foot of the steps to compose himself. Outside, time expanded and briefly froze and cubed. The rain had stopped, and the air was perfumed by renewal, the scent of things fresh and clean. The cosmogonic cycle was at work, and he was still alive. At once guilty and grateful, Garrett pictured the arriving multitude of brand-new children, tender plants and animals, all destined to come apart again in the harsh way of things. It seemed a miracle and a tragic paradox, both bitter and sweet, to be a human and alive. When the metal door slammed behind him with a bang, he began to run. That was Harry Shannon's The Easy Way, as read by Nathan Lowell. Nathan Lowell has been reading for over 50 years and writing almost as long. His first successes came in 2007 with the rise of podcast fiction. He completed his first successful novel, Quarter Share, in January of 2007 and podcast it through podiobooks.com over February and March 2007. Since then, he has written eight novels, several short stories, and novella. His podcast novels have been finalist in the Parsec Award five times, and he's won Parsec Awards for Speculative Fiction Long Form twice in 2010 and 2011. Thank you, Nathan. That will be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.